First Light has always made the world's best base layers. They are warm, breathable, silent, and odor resistant. But the women's fit and the gear weren't meeting our demands, so we went back to the beginning and rebuilt everything. Re-engineering the gear with the most dedicated female hunters in mind, First Light modernized the fit and added more sizes, colors, and camo patterns. I personally have been testing the women's gear over the last couple of years, uh, from the mountains in Idaho to the plains in Nebraska, and I feel like the fit especially has landed in a much better spot. It's more true to size. It's not as tight and binding in certain areas like a lot of women's fit. Uh, all of the pieces, to me, got an all-around upgrade. It's awesome to see. So for yourself or as a gift this Mother's Day, pick up First Light's new women's merino wool and get free shipping on all orders containing women's gear. Available now at F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E dot com. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, your guide to the fundamentals of better deer hunting. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel for the stand, saddle, or blind. First Light, go farther, stay longer. And now, your host, Tony Peterson. Hey everyone, welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. I'm your host, Tony Peterson, and today's episode is all about thinking about deer and what they actually do throughout the entire day. Wildlife, I don't know, if you don't live out there in the wild with all the critters, it's sort of an abstract concept. I mean, in some ways, we often only think of them in terms of what they can do for us, or in the case of deer and other big game, how we can cross paths with them during a certain part of the year, during certain parts of certain days. But the truth is, they're out there every day. And what they do, we often have no clue about. That's what this episode is really meant to focus on, which is thinking about the animals we love to hunt as a permanent fixture on the landscape and not something that just exists when it's time for us to go climb into a tree and try to deflate their lungs. As a society, we have a weird fascination with serial killers. Criminals in general, actually, but serial killers specifically. Go turn on Netflix or Hulu or whatever 17 different streaming services you pay for now that you don't pay for cable, and you can feast on the murder mysteries until you're full up. You can find documentaries on all of the serial killers out there. Gacy, Dahmer, BTK, on and on. You can watch dramas and series on serial killers like Dexter. You can learn about the women who love serial killers and who send them letters and even agree to marry them. This says something about how dumb we are with celebrities and fame, probably, or just how batshit crazy some people are. And I'm not talking about the dudes who racked up a crazy body count while pretending to be normal members of society. It's wild. And what's weird is if you pay attention to serial killers at all, they nearly all got caught because they made a mistake after following some kind of pattern for a long time. They became predictable. They also found a lot of their victims through either random opportunity or the patterns that were, you guessed it, predictable. I thought about this recently after appearing as a guest on the Nine Finger Chronicles, a podcast hosted by Dan Johnson, who might just be my long-lost twin brother. While his show is a hunting podcast, we mostly talk about things that aren't related to hunting, which is what we were doing recently. 
He and I were having a good old bitch session about our wives and kids when I casually mentioned how often my family members, who aren't two feet tall and black and super into retrieving pheasants, often leave stuff right at the top of the stairs. Now, this might not sound like a big deal, but we live in a normal split-level house. So when you walk through our front door, you either go upstairs right away or downstairs. Since most of the living we do is upstairs, the area right at the top of my stairs is without doubt the most high traffic spot in our house. It's also where my family likes to leave pretty much anything and everything that they could carry into the house. Essentially, it's an obstacle course 24-7, and it doesn't have to be, and it drives me absolutely freaking crazy. It's also a location where if you plan to hunt my family, you'd want to set up as an ambush spot. This is what I've said to Dan, and I've thought about it a lot since, because while it's morbid and kind of weird, it's just true. If you were to scout us out and try to fill a tag on one of the Petersons, you could do far worse than setting up shop right where we are all funneled into the second floor. This led me to think about how often we ride bikes or walk through a park somewhere in our neighborhood, and how often I think about hunting deer in some of those places. I'm sure you do this too. But I spent a lot of time looking at trees and thinking about how I'd set up along the mowed trails and edges that are all over the wooded parks. That inevitably leads me to think about how many of these clueless suburbanites would walk right by without looking up. I bet most of them would have no idea that someone was saddled up about 20 feet over their heads. Of course, that line of thinking leads you to go down the rabbit hole of what if you had to hunt people for some reason, maybe during a full-on invasion of our country, which is deep in weird fantasy land. I get it. But you guys have those thoughts, right? Right? What habits of the enemy would you have to learn? You'd probably try to figure out where they slept, where they walked, where they ate, how they got supplies, and where they were most vulnerable. You'd think about their 24-hour cycle of life and really try to understand as many parts as possible. It wouldn't matter if it was November or March or July or whenever. You'd want as much information as you could get. Do you see where I'm going with this? Deer are mostly a mystery to us. And what's worse, we all think we know what they do. We all think we know where they bed and feed and travel to do their thing. And we do. At least maybe about 7% of the time, those daily movements are predictable. We know they'll feed on the soybeans because, well, duh. But why not on opening night and when you're hunting them? We all know they'll water here and walk there in bed on that bench and whatever else. But we are mostly wrong about that at any given point when we try to hunt them in those locations. Part of that is because we tip our hand to them too much and they just know we are there. That's a given and it's never not going to be a part of hunting. But a bigger part of it is that we just don't understand deer in their daily lives a whole lot. We try to understand sign and what it means but we narrow our focus down so much that we are often only paying attention to certain kinds of sign at certain times of the season. We try to understand food sources, but really we often focus on the big picture buffets that are easy to figure out. We often don't take too deep of a dive into browse in many cases, and we mostly react to seasonal foods like mast, often after they aren't that relevant and the deer have mostly moved on to something else. We rarely rarely spend enough time figuring out a deer's whole life 
to find that sweet spot at the top of the stairs where all the bucks and the does go through multiple times a day. And the does, even the doe fawns, leave all of their gym bags and shoes and laundry baskets and books and random detritus laying right there where the dominant buck has to walk and sometimes he trips and sometimes he stubs his toe on something like a case of bottled water and when he does he invents new curse words that the neighboring deer can hear him screaming after he bends his pinky toenail right over on itself First Light has always made the world's best base layers. They're warm, breathable, silent, and odor-resistant. But the women's fit and the gear weren't meeting our demands, so we went back to the beginning and rebuilt everything. Re-engineering the gear with the most dedicated female hunters in mind, First Light modernized the fit and added more sizes, colors, and camo patterns. I personally have been testing the women's gear over the last couple of years, uh, from the mountains in Idaho to the plains in Nebraska, and I feel like the fit especially has landed in a much better spot. It's more true to size. It's not as tight and binding in certain areas like a lot of women's fit. Uh, All of the pieces, to me, got an all-around upgrade. It's awesome to see. So for yourself or as a gift this Mother's Day, pick up First Light's new women's merino wool and get free shipping on all orders containing women's gear. Available now at F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E dot com. The thing is... We can't know a buck's whole life unless we put up a 10-foot fence around him and then radio collar him. Even then, we probably wouldn't learn some of the subtle movements and patterns about his day. Now think about this with wild deer, and there are a whole lot more gaps in our knowledge. We fill these in because it's comforting. Humans do this a lot. What we don't have answers for, we often make up, and then over time, we just start to believe them. We do this to the point where even when we are shown that we are wrong, we don't believe it. This has never been a great feature of mankind, and it applies to so many aspects of our life. Take one of my favorite topics, for example, space. Go back about 2,400 years ago, and you have a fella named Aristotle who said a lot of profound things and a lot of dumb things, but he was a voice of authority and reason and intellect. So when he said that the stars in the sky don't change, people believed it. Then the church, and that's with a capital C, believed it too. They were the authority at the time. So we had a whole bunch of people in Europe, specifically during several hundred years, who believed that the stars in the sky were an unmoving fixture, like the light hanging over your kitchen table, kind of. Now, Go back about 7,000 years earlier than Aristotle's time, and you have a star that was 10 times the size of our sun in the Taurus constellation that went supernova, which means that it spent several billion years with an internal fight going on where gravity finally won. You see, stars are kind of just like giant nuclear reactors, which get extremely hot. Well, no shit, right? Stars are essentially big balls of fuel. They have an insane amount of mass, which means they have an insane amount of gravity. That gravity is trying hard to pull everything toward the center, but the nuclear fusion that happens at levels we can't fathom on the inside of it creates heat, which generates outward pressure, which balances the effect of gravity. Until the fuel starts to burn out, 
then the stars cool just enough where gravity gets a definitive edge and the stars collapse. This happens so fast that something that is a million times the size of Earth can collapse in a matter of like 15 seconds, which as you can imagine, is quite the event. Now the light from this explosion travels at 186,000 miles a second in all directions. When this happened to that star in the Taurus constellation I mentioned earlier, the light spent 7,000 years shooting across the cosmos until it was visible on Earth. Chinese astronomers wrote about this celestial event. Middle Eastern astronomers wrote about it. Native Americans down there in the southwest corner of the United States made rock engravings about it. Europe, collectively, looked the other way, and it was kind of all crickets from them, which is some serious denial considering the supernova was so bright that for a while it was visible in broad daylight. The people there, during that time of our history, believe that the stars don't move and they don't change and therefore they just didn't accept what they were seeing. Humans do this with so many things like, you guessed it, golf and hunting. How many of you fine listeners believe that deer mostly don't move during the hottest part of the day? That they mostly lay up in the shade and wait out the long late summer hours until the cooler part of the day shows up? How many of you walked out to hang stands, like I did a couple weeks ago, and saw several deer out feeding in a bean field in the blazing sunlight when the mercury was touching the mid-90s? Or, how often have you gotten random pictures on your trail camera of a buck walking along a trail at noon in the end of August? Or maybe feeding in the alfalfa field at 10 in the morning on October 1st? Do you look the other way when this stuff happens? You shouldn't, even though I know that is easier said than done. Think about this another way. How often have you glassed during the summer or sat on a field edge during the season and watched deer go back and forth between the cover and the groceries? Instead of just walking in the field and feeding nonstop, you know, they spend 10 minutes in the food source and then they head into the woods for a while. Then they bounce back out on a different trail. What are they doing? Well, they're probably like you when you're at a summer cookout. You grab a burger to put on your plate maybe some fruit, scoop of coleslaw, whatever. When you finish that, you think, mm, I could eat a little more. So you go back for round two, and then someone puts out dessert. You think deer don't think like that during the summer and the early season when food sources are most variable and abundant? They do. Now, does it matter? Maybe. Maybe you can't hunt the main food source because you don't have permission. Now you have to hunt in the woods. Now, how does that back and forth pattern play out? Maybe you assume that bucks are nocturnal and they mostly bed all day long and don't move during the hours when you can legally shoot them. Do your cameras in the woods all summer long support that notion? Does your early to mid-season hunting support that notion? Do you really think that a buck is so cautious that he's going to lay down in a secluded bed and not get up one time to take a dump or stretch his legs or nibble on some brows or snarf up some acorns? Probably not. But he might not travel half of a mile to do those things. His movements might only take him 100 or 200 yards from his bed, maybe no more. But he's going to get up and he's going to move. He's going to do these things every single day even if we don't believe it or don't expect it. Now, there is a component to recognizing this and trying to learn more about their daily lives that is so important. 
And it's not just about always being in the game. It's not just about finding the exact right tree to play some high-level pattern of deer hunting with to kill a buck when most folks think it's not quite possible. It's much more simple than that. It's confidence in yourself to try new things and hunt when you previously thought it wasn't worth it. That's so huge, my friends. And it's something we don't face very often because it's easier to fill in the blanks and just pat ourselves on the back for not hunting at certain times in certain conditions while thinking all along that we are being good hunters by playing it safe. Instead, you want to learn about their daily lives? Spend some more time watching them. Run your cameras closer together to see how often they use one trail and not another. That'll blow your minds over time, I promise you. Instead of looking to confirm what you think you know, look to see what you're missing in their daily lives. Try to understand what they do, why they do it, instead of buying into the idea that we have them all figured out. And there are huge sections of the day where they just aren't killable or where there are sizable sections of any given season where they just aren't killable. I personally don't believe any of that stuff, mostly because there's evidence all over that it's pure bunk. But just like those dark age early Europeans who saw a bright star appear in the sky, even during the daytime, we just like to stick to what we know. This might save more deer and elk and antelope and turkeys every year than all of the shifting winds and rush shots and sloppy setups ever will. And it all starts with the idea that we don't know what we don't know, but we sure as hell can learn some stuff we don't know. This, like going on a fad diet or starting a workout regimen, is easy to embrace in a big way, but is better adopted in small, manageable chunks. I like to do this by thinking about where Buck's going to feed tonight and how he'll leave the food in the morning. Where's he likely headed? Is he going to go munch on some brows or soft mass like grapes? Where's the water? Is he going to be thirsty? Probably. Where are the bedding options? Is he more likely to tuck into a shaded bench on a wooded hillside or go lay out in a grassy waterway in a field where the wind keeps him cool and keeps some of the bugs off his nose and his ears? How often does he leave the property you're scouting and hunting? Why would he leave? What would make him come back and spend more time there? How about the ladies in the scrapper bucks? If you laser focus your potential deer knowledge solely on mature bucks and what they like to do in a day, you are missing a huge window of opportunity. The other deer in the herd can teach us plenty if we're willing to pay attention to them. In fact, that's what I'm going to talk about next week. I've been scouting quite a bit the last few weeks and it has just become so much more obvious to me how important it is to pay attention to does as well as the big bucks not only what they do in their daily lives but how they react to situations where they travel at any given moment and a whole host of other factors there's much to learn my friends and we're just getting started so think about those bucks think about what you think you know get out there and prove yourself wrong and then listen in next week, because I'm going to cover that topic that gets no love, but will make you a better hunter. That's it for this week, my friends. I'm Tony Peterson, and this is the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. As always, thank you so much for listening in and for your support. All of us at Meat Eater here, we really, really appreciate it. If you want some more whitetail content or elk content, fishing content, whatever you name it, head on over to TheMeatEater.com. 
and you will see all kinds of how-to videos, all kinds of our series, articles, podcasts, everything you need to scratch that itch. First Light has always made the world's best base layers. They're warm, breathable, silent, and odor-resistant. But the women's fit and the gear weren't meeting our demands, so we went back to the beginning and rebuilt everything. Re-engineering the gear with the most dedicated female hunters in mind, First Light modernized the fit and added more sizes, colors, and camo patterns. I personally have been testing the women's gear over the last couple of years, uh, from the mountains in Idaho to the plains in Nebraska, and I feel like the fit especially has landed in a much better spot. It's more true to size. It's not as tight and binding in certain areas like a lot of women's fit. Uh, All of the pieces, to me, got an all-around upgrade. It's awesome to see. So for yourself or as a gift this Mother's Day, pick up First Light's new women's merino wool and get free shipping on all orders containing women's gear. Available now at F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E dot com.